You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hey, this is Lenny Goldberg, and thanks for joining me today. I wanted to open up by talking about two righteous Jews. The first one I want to talk about, his name is Harel Masoy. Hashem Yenkom Domo. He was murdered in a terror attack by the Hummus restaurant near the Shuva Valley a couple weeks ago. There were four people murdered and they were wounded there. Last week I talked about one of the wounded. Today I wanted to talk about one of the murdered boys there. Put a face on the name. His name was Harel Masui. And if you drive around the Shamron, you'll see his picture up on the posters that were put up of the four murder victims in that terror attack at the Eli Junction. Harel Masui, he was from the settlement Yad Binyamin. Yad Binyamin isn't a settlement in Judea and Samaria. It's in the heart of Israel. It's a small town and it's a very successful and growing city, Yad Binyamin, in the heart of Israel, like I said. And Harel Masoy was born to a family. That was a typical traditional family, Yemenite. And he was a lot different than anybody from his family and even from his neighbors and friends. While most of the youth were interested in the newest smartphone or Netflix series, Harel, he was different. He was interested in going to the hilltops and starting a settlement and establishing a farm and capturing Jewish land so the Arabs don't get to it. That's what interested him. He didn't have a big smartphone like everybody else. He had one of those little Nokias. Staring at a smartphone all day, that wasn't for him. And sometimes you wonder, how does a neshama, how does a Jewish soul just sprout like that in a place where nobody else is like that? The family wasn't like that. His friends weren't like that, but he was, he was different. He grew his past long. He didn't look at girls. When it's time to date, he'll date. But in the meantime, nothing to do with girls. Totally humble. And and again, he was so different than anybody else. Now you have in Yad Bin Yamin, uh, the yeshiva of Nevet Kalim, which was the yeshiva of Rav Tal from Gush Katif. When it was dismantled, it moved to Yad Bin Yamin. But he wasn't part of that chevrei. He was his own thing. A special neshama that came down to this world. And so he spent a lot of his time on the hilltops. He wasn't interested in all the trappings and comforts that living in a comfortable home brings. He was out there in the Shetach, as they say, guarding the land of Israel from the Arab trespassers. And his dream was always to have his own goats and sheep. He wanted to be a Jewish shepherd. Anyway, when it was time to do the army, Harel, he wasn't really that into it. He didn't want to go. Like a lot of hilltop youth, they don't see joining the IDF as the ideal vehicle to help the Jewish people. Going to the army isn't their aspiration. It's not that they don't want to defend Jews and fight Arabs. They do it plenty, but they want to do it in their way without the restraints of the IDF. Plus, a lot of times the IDF is their adversaries because when they're on those hilltops, many times it's the IDF soldiers under the instructions of the government who are giving them a hard time evacuating them or sometimes they come into blows. So a lot of the hilltop youth, they're not gung-ho about joining the Israeli army. Well, the father of Harel Masoy, he's old school. He's a typical Israeli, proud Israeli. He wants his son to do the army. He wanted his son to do the army and Harel didn't want to disappoint his parents. So listen to the deal he made with his father. You see, in the IDF, there's a special unit for the hilltop youth. It's called Yechidat Hashem. It's the unit for the scouts or the trackers. What is a tracker, a gashash? The gashashim, those are the guys who follow tracks. Let's say the Jeep is patrolling the border and they see something 
suspicious, they see footsteps or tracks or signs of somebody was there, a gashash, uh, a tracker, he's an expert in knowing who it was, when it was, and almost all the gashashim, all the scouts, the Bedouins, they're all Bedouins. Because Bedouins, they're used to that because Bedouins are brought up in the fields, in the Shetach, in the territories, with sheep and goats and whatever they do out there. They're the Gashashim. They make the best trackers. And they're in the IDF. But the Hilltop youth are also good at it because they're also shepherds. So they made a special IDF unit of these Hilltop youth to teach them the art of being a Gashash, of being a tracker, because they're naturally good at it. So Harel told his father, listen, Pop, if I join this unit and I become a tracker in the IDF, you got to promise to buy me some sheep. And this father happily agreed to that. So that's what happened. Harel did his army duty. He was a gashash, tracker, a Jewish tracker, which by the way is a kiddush Hashem that the Jews are being the trackers and we don't have to be dependent on Bedouins to do that. So after his service, his father bought him about 12 sheep and he took his flock to the hilltops of a settlement not far from me called Shachar, on the hilltops there. And he set up his farm. Now after the army, like many soldiers do, he got a grant of 50,000 shekels for his service in the IDF. What did he do with it? He bought some more goats and he set up his farm on that hilltop near Kochav Shachar. Now that hilltop, by the way, following the murder of Ahuvia Sandak, if you recall, there was a young boy named Ahuvia Sandak. I don't want to go through the whole story, a tragic story, but some vicious Jewish policemen knocked his car off the road purposely because they wanted to arrest them. And Ahuvia was killed by getting rammed by these Jewish policemen. And so on that spot where he was murdered, Harel and his friends set up this hilltop. Okay, so Harel's next move was to move to a different hilltop. He wanted to establish a new nikudah, as they say, another spot for a hilltop. And during his time establishing that new hilltop, he went to buy a mule, a mule. And buying the mule with him was this 14-year-old kid who was all excited about buying a new mule. And so they bought the mule, they put him in a wagon, which was towed by his car. And they stopped off at Ellie Junction with the mule, with the wagon, Arel and his friend Nachman with the 14-year-old boy. And they got out of the car and they went into the Chumas restaurant. And that's when the Arab terrorist, Yamach Shamo, started shooting at the Jews in the Chumas restaurant and killed Harel and his friend Nachman. The 14-year-old boy was saved. He didn't go into the restaurant. And you know why? Because he loved that mule so much, he didn't want to leave it. And he didn't want anything to happen to it. So he stayed in the car in order to stay with his mule. When the shooting started, he left the car and he ran and hid himself. And when the security forces arrived on the scene, they see this mule unaccounted for. They don't know what's going on. A vacant automobile because Harel and Nachum had been murdered inside the restaurant. And I want to tell just one interesting story that happened to Harel Masui. One day he returned to his hilltop and he noticed that his goats were stolen. And this happens all the time. There's always conflicts with the neighboring Arabs, the Bedouin villages nearby. There's constant conflict between the Jews and the Arabs on these hilltops. And his goats were stolen. And he had no idea where to start looking. Now near Kochav Shachar, there's a pretty strong presence of Bedouins. And there's a particular Bedouin hilltop there with about 20 tents, which is, which is a considerable Bedouin population for them. And Harel and his friends went into that village. They went on a rampage. They took back their flocks, led them back to the hilltops. A couple of days later, that Bedouin village, well, it's not really a village, it's a bunch of tents, but it had been there for a long time. That hostile presence, 
Suddenly, the hillside they once dwelt on was now empty and abandoned. They vacated where they were. Why? Because they said to themselves, hey, we got business with these crazy Jews. They just came right in here without any compunction and did what they wanted. Let's get out of here. Let's find another place to put our tents. So we see sometimes that the deterrent factor of these hilt-up youth is greater than the soldiers with all their guns and M16s and grenades. Sometimes the attitude, that's the deterrent factor. Another important Jew I wanted to talk about, his name is Amiram Ben-Uliel. Who is Amiram Ben-Uliel? Well, eight years ago, in the Arab village of Duma, which also, by the way, is near the same settlement, Kochav Shachar, somebody burned down the house of the Darwapsha family, an Arab family, killing the mother, the father, and child. And of course, the Shin Bet went on a wild chase to find out who did it. They were convinced it was one of those crazy extremist Hilltop Youth types. Well, a couple of months later, they arrested two boys. One was Amiram Ben Uliel, and the other was a young kid, about 16 years old, named Alicia Odis. This was a couple months after the incident, and both boys were arrested, no visitors, no lawyers, no nothing, and tortured. And they confessed under that torture. And for the past eight years, Amiram Ben Uliel is sitting in solitary confinement in a small, tiny cell. Again, no visitors, no cell phones. He can't see his wife. His conditions are much worse than any other prisoner, worse than Yigal Amir, worse than any Arab terrorist. Now, I have a personal connection to all this because Amiram Ben Uliel, before he was arrested, he actually was the Shatchan of my daughter and my son-in-law. That is, he made the Shidduch. He brought together his friend, Yakir, with my daughter. And so we're very close to what's going on. Now, let me tell you something that happened. You might've heard of this. Like I said, about eight years ago, Ben Uliel and Alicia Otis, they were arrested by the Shabak and they were tortured. Now, when they were first arrested, there was no advertising. It wasn't in the papers. Nothing was publicized about their arrest. But the people in the know the family of these boys, the friends of these boys, saw that they disappeared and they knew what was going on. They were following it. They knew that Amiran Ben Uliel and Elisha Otis were gone and they were the boys who were being tortured. But again, it wasn't in the media at all. It was hushed. And because of this travesty, we had for the first time really fiery demonstrations against the Shin Bet because they were torturing Jewish boys. And it wasn't just demonstrations of the extremists. You had mainstream Jews, settlement leaders, the Shomron Council was getting in on it, going into the streets, demanding that the Shin Bet stop the torture, leave these boys alone, give them a fair trial, release their names, give them a lawyer, give them phone calls, you know, basic things. And there was a real strong sentiment against the Israeli Shabak for what they were doing. I mean, even if you don't like the Hilltop Youth, it's not fair what's being done to them, right? Okay. Anyway, so during that time when you had all these demonstrations and the names of the boys arrested weren't released, my daughter married my son-in-law in Jerusalem and who was at the wedding? Well, all their friends, the friends of these boys were arrested. Obviously, they were a strong presence at that wedding. Anyway, during the dancing, Sinai Tor was playing Zachreni Na from Dov Shurin, a song about Nikama, and the boys were running around with signs and pictures and there were pictures of the victims of the fire there and they're singing vengeance and holding up guns. Okay, I thought it was a little bizarre, but I was joining in the dancing. Why not? It's a celebration. It's a private wedding, right? And I forgot about it. Two weeks later, all of a sudden, everybody saw that wedding. People in Europe, in America, 
watch this wedding of people dancing and celebrating the death of these, the death of this Arab family. Okay. The media called it Chatunatasina, the wedding of hate. So what did the Shabbat do? They knew that public opinion was against them. They knew that people were fed up with these tactics out of the KGB against other Jews. So what did they do? They took this footage, they waited at the right time, and they released it to show everybody, look how crazy these people are. These hilltop kids, they deserve everything. You can't back them now. Look at these guys, they're nuts. They're celebrating the murder of this Arab family at a wedding and blah, blah, blah. Well, it worked. They manipulated public opinion. That all the people who are demonstrating against the Shin Bet's torture of these boys, now they let it go because, hey, these kids deserve it. They're crazy. So that's my personal connection to this whole episode. And the whole thing is really so ridiculous. I mean, isn't a wedding a private affair? I mean, isn't it like my party and I'll do what I want to? Like the song says, I'll cry if I want to. I mean, what is that? And later on, the management of the wedding hall said that the Shin Bet put up cameras in the back. So they had the whole thing ready. They knew there was going to be a wild celebration. They probably gave some of those signs to some of the kids to go with it. And they had a nice little sound bite or video bite for what they wanted. So in the meantime, Elisha Odis was released, but Amiran Ben Oliel is sitting under the worst conditions you could possibly be in. But he's strong and he's righteous and Hashem should be with him and he should only come out of it. You know, Jonathan Pollard, who was interviewed by our own Tamar Yona, our producer, he sat in solitary confinement for seven years and somehow came out of it okay. I hope that Amiran Ben Uliel is made of the same stuff. And if you want to help his case, you can email me, Lenny Goldberg 40, that's the number 40, Lenny with two N's, Lenny Goldberg 40 at gmail.com. And I'll tell you what you can do to help him and his young family. Moving on to the news in Israel. As you probably know, if you follow the news, the president of Israel, President Herzog, he spoke to Congress last week. And the Israeli talking heads who were reporting his speech, they were just felling from Nachas because he got like 32 standing O's, a lot of standing ovations for President Herzog from the Congress. And it's kind of interesting that both Bibi and Herzog, they speak better English than a lot of the American congressmen, certainly better than Fetterman. But the thing about Herzog's speech, and you know, I hate to be a killjoy with all those standing O's, but he's such a bootlicker. I mean, here you have a Biden administration, which snubs the Israeli prime minister. We're talking unprecedented hostility towards the Israeli prime minister, okay? But much worse than that, it's the Biden administration who put back into action the pay for slay. What's pay for slay? That the families of Arab murderers are given financial compensation and other benefits. Any terrorists jailed in Israeli prisons, they're martyrs, and they get benefits for their tax against Israelis. That's pay for slay. It's what the Arabs call a martyr payment system, a form of social welfare. Well, when President Trump came into office in 2016, there was no more pay for slay budgets. He turned off the water of the PA, and there was no pay for slay anymore. But Biden put it back on, and since 2017, $346 million have been paid to the martyrs and the prisoners. 33,000 recipient families have been getting compensation for terror attacks of their relatives, and it reflects in a lot more Jewish victims. 
And that's one of the reasons there's a huge uptick of violence in Sudan, Samaria, ever since Biden took office. But Herzog didn't care about that. He just kissed up to the Biden administration during his speech. And it was brilliant the way he spun the judicial reform debate in Israel. He called it a uh, tribute to the fortitude of Israel's democracy. Standing over for that. Yeah, that's how the president of Israel views the mass disruption to public life resulting from these protesters' intimidation, harassing government ministers. That's okay. That's all a tribute to Israeli democracy. The threats and the blackmail by the IDF reservists that they're not going to answer the call to defend their country unless the judicial reforms are abandoned. That's all right, because Herzog is really one of them. He's one of the elitist. So he's not going to tell Congress the truth. And he's not going to stop kissing the tuchus of Biden. At least when Bibi went to Congress and made a great speech, he did it in Barack Obama's face. Obama didn't want him there, and Bibi came anyway. So at least Bibi had an edge to him. Bibi exhibited a little Jewish pride, not kissing up to Obama, the opposite. He angered Obama when he showed up to Congress and got a lot of standing O's too. And, you know, speaking of judicial reforms, you know, we talk about it all the time. What's the big deal? Well, I'll tell you the big deal. I'll give you one example of something last week. You know, Israel also has a problem of illegal infiltrators into their country. And it's a small country. I mean, America can't absorb the millions of infiltrators who are coming in. They're going to change that country around and there's going to be a point of no return. Israel's a smaller country. So when you have all these Sudanese and, and illegal aliens from African countries pouring into Israel, that's a big problem. And they bring crime. Just go to Southern Tel Aviv to the old central bus station and you'll see what we mean. A lot of these Jews who live in South Tel Aviv, it's become a nightmare for them because of these Sudanese. So what did the Knesset do? They made a law that would encourage these infiltrators to leave Israel. You see, these infiltrators get social benefits, even though they're illegally in Israel. They're getting social benefits. Yeah, it's not just America that's out of their minds. Israel's also wacky. And they give these infiltrators benefits. So the Knesset made a law that would stop these benefits. And what happened? Well, it came to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court came in and invalidated the law. They shot it down. They said it's unconstitutional and disproportionate. So they invalidated a law which was intended to encourage the foreign workers to leave Israel to take away a little of their incentive. So now you know just a little bit why these judicial reforms are so important, because these decisions they're making, it enters every area of life, not just illegal aliens. It touches upon religion, military decisions. It's everything. These leftist judges, they rule according, according to their leftist worldview, and they're basically running the country, and the Knesset, it's just a prop. Anyway, in a major square in Tel Aviv, the reservists, they wanted to demonstrate that they're hanging up their shoes. They're hanging it up. That means they're retiring from the army as protest against these judicial reforms. And so they hung up their army boots on this like laundry line in a Tel Aviv square. And all these shoes were hanging up there. And a couple of Hilltop youth, they had a great idea. They say, hey, if they don't want those shoes, we'll take them. And they took those boots off the line. And they took it for themselves because they can use good army boots. Anyway, there's a really hilarious video of this. You see the hilltop youth taking those boots down and the leftists getting all upset. And if you want me to send it to you, email me at LennyGoldberg40 at gmail.com. LennyGoldberg40 with two N's, the number 40, LennyGoldberg40 at gmail.com.
I'll figure out a way to get you that video. It's pretty funny. It's like a total culture clash when these Hilltop youth walk into Tel Aviv. And finally, in case you didn't hear this, our own producer, Tamar Yona, she interviewed Jonathan Pollard last week, and he gave an interview over an hour, and he spoke great. I mean, when he speaks, just get out of his way. Just let him talk. And Tamar did a good job of just getting out of his way and letting him speak, because every word is gold. It's fascinating to hear him because it's not just his ideology, but he comes from experience. He's got jail stories. He explains what happened to him exactly from his point of view, why he did what he did. And he articulates it so well. And he's so dougry, as they say, he's so straightforward. I mean, if I knew he was this great, I would have worked much harder to get him out of jail. But it's better late than never. And so I want to play from that interview by Tamar Yona, uh, just a small part of it. She asked Jonathan Pollard what he thinks about this judicial reform debate and the protests of the left. All the protests that are happening and the effort to undermine our economy and our standing in the world, things that BDS could only dream about doing, has nothing to do with judicial reform. It has everything to do with the loss of power of the left wing here. Mm -hmm. And it is a bit racial as well. This is the left-wing Ashkenazi elite that suddenly realized that us deplorables are now in the ascendancy here. Us God-fearing deplorables. Uh, sorry, Hillary Clinton. But th that's how they view us, that we are incapable of, of understanding how a 21st century country should be run on liberal, woke, left-wing values. Excuse me, our values go back to Matan Torah and even before that to it's the loss, finally, of the last bastion of the left wing in this country, which is the high court. We're basically run by what's called a juristocracy, a rule by unelected judges, no, no control over what they do. They're legal advisors that run all our ministries. It isn't democracy. I've talked to these left wing guys and I said, do you actually understand what democracy is? Do you actually understand what representative government is? you understand that, that, that the, the Supreme Court is supposed to be reflective of the people's will? Look, I've talked to some of these pilots that are threatening to strike, and I ask them, did we have a democratic election? Did we have it? Yes. Did you guys lose? Yes. I said, then get over it. So this is what we're putting up with. Don't think this is for democracy. Don't think that this is about judicial reform. This is an old-fashioned coup d'etat, attempted coup d'etat by a bunch of losers who, who can't get over the fact that their day of suppressing the rest of us deplorables, God-fearing deplorables, is coming to an end. Thank God, Baruch Hashem. That was Jonathan Pollard doing his interview right here on International News Talk Radio, letting us know what he thinks of the judicial reform debate. This coming Thursday is the 9th of Av. It's a fast day, and these last three weeks, and these last nine days especially, are days of mourning. We recall the destruction of the temples and other bad things that happened on the 9th of Av. And with all the laws of mourning that take place, it kind of permeates a feeling of uh, solemnness, which culminates in the 9th of Av, which is this Thursday where we fast for a full 24 hours. And what I heard today in the synagogue on Shabbat from the rabbi, and we hear all the time during these days, is the call to laharbot ba'avat chinam, that we need a lot of avat chinam. What's avat chinam? It means literally free love, avat chinam. That's loving without any conditions. 
And what they say is that because the temple was destroyed because of sinat chinam, because of baseless hatred, the tikkun, the correction to that is to have a lot of avat chinam, and that's how we're going to fix things. A lot of avat chinam, and that will solve all our problems. That will solve the problems of the leftists in Tel Aviv who hate us. That'll solve the problems of the entire world. Maybe it'll solve the Arab problem too. A lot of avat chinam. In other words, it's like one big Beatles song. You know, all you need is love. That'll solve all the problems. And we don't want to get sued by the Beatles, so I have to sing it. But seriously, is that really the Jewish way? Now, I know it sounds good. It goes with the times. Love, love, love. Avat chinam. It's a nice slogan. Rabbi Kahana taught us like this. Just like sinat chinam is forbidden, so is avat chinam. Just like hating without a reason is forbidden, then avat chinam, then loving for no reason, that's also forbidden. In Judaism, you don't do anything chinam for no reason. There's ahava, there's love in its place and hate in its place. Like Solomon says, time to hate, time to love. So the Torah, it's not some you know hippie handbook. It's all about love and peace. There has to be a balance and there is a balance. Sinat chinam is forbidden and so is avat chinam. Nothing is chinam. Everything has a reason. Anyway, so right after the rabbi talked all about the need for a lot of avat chinam, love, 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 we read the Haftorah. What was the Haftorah this past Shabbat? We're in Shabbat Chazon. It's the Shabbat always before Tisha B'Av. And Yeshayahu, the prophet, in chapter one, he really goes off on the Jewish people. I mean, he is rebuking them. I didn't see much avat chinam in Yeshayahu, what he said. He said to the Jewish people who were sinning, Shimuk stom. Listen to me, you leaders of stone. Hazinu Amamora. Pay attention, nation of Amora. So he's nicknaming the Jewish nation who are sinning. They're like Storm and Gomorrah. That's how Harifi spoke to them. There wasn't much Avat Chinam in his words because there's really no such thing as Avat Chinam. And this philosophy comes mainly from the staunchest Zionist rabbis. This thing of Avat Chinam all day long. And that's how you know that they're not going to bring the redemption because the redemption is a revolution which means there's going to be a tremendous amount of turnover and change, and we're going to have to defeat a bitter Arab enemy. And you don't bring change through Avat Chinam, because a community that their whole thing is Avat Chinam, they can't bring a revolutionary change. They're not built to throw out the Arabs or to take care of the Erev Rav. So with Tisha B'Av coming up this Thursday, and I want to read to you parts of an article that Binyamin Kahana wrote regarding Tisha B'Av, and it touches upon the fact that we sit and we cry and we lament. And the question is, if it's not maybe appropriate to do something else, because in the exile, okay, there's nothing else you can do. But the question is, is there something else we should do now that we have the Temple Mount in our hands technically and we're back in the land of Israel with Jewish sovereignty technically? Maybe we should change up a little bit. Anyway, let me read part of this article. It's called Something Has Happened since Napoleon. It is told of Napoleon that upon passing a synagogue during the ninth of Av, he looked inside and saw Jews sitting on the floor and weeping. When he inquired further, he was told that the Jews were mourning over the destruction of their temple. How long ago did this occur, he asked. About 1,500 years ago, he was told. In that case, Napoleon said, there is no doubt that their temple will be rebuilt 
because a people capable of crying for so long over its destroyed temple and land will eventually find its way home. That's what Napoleon said. And the article continues, while the Jewish people remained in the exile, this was a nice story. Without a doubt, its optimistic message encouraged our people during times of severe hardships. Napoleon was keen enough to realize that a people who relives its past will succeed in conquering its future. Indeed, Napoleon said what our sages said, he who mourns for Jerusalem will merit to share in her joy. However, there exists one little problem. All this mourning was appropriate when we were forced into the exile, being held at the mercy of the Gentile nations and thus unable to forge our national destiny. In such a case, it was fitting to mourn wholeheartedly over our destroyed temple and land. And today, one doesn't need to have a PhD in history to see how things have changed since the times of Napoleon. Then, the land of Israel lay desolate. Today, it is rebuilt. Then, Jews only dreamt about coming to Israel. Today, Jews not only live in Israel, but they rule over it. Then, all we could do is cry. But today, is mourning the only imperative for today? Is it not a bit absurd to lament in the synagogue of the exile, beseeching God for a speedy redemption, when all one needs to do is pack one's bag and board an eastbound LL? Is it enough to stand by the wall of the Temple Mount, wailing over the destruction when it's in our hands to erect the fallen city, in our hands to purify the site from the foxes who degrade it, and yes, even in our hands to rebuild the Holy Temple? Fellow Jews, let us open our eyes and appreciate the wondrous miracles that Hashem has granted us. Miracles we have not witnessed since the days of our exodus from Egypt. He who cried and only cried in the days of Napoleon, he did right. His tears were sincere. But today, he who cries and does not combine his tears with real action, his lamentations leave much to be desired. His entreaties go unheeded, for God urges us on as he did to the Jews before crossing the Red Sea. Why do you cry to me? Speak to the children of Israel that they go forward. So let us go forward and determine our destiny. And so this is very important. We have to move on a little bit, get out of the rut of crying and try to be proactive in building the temple because indeed times have changed since Napoleon. That's it for me. Tune into my Bible classes, Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes, a podcast on Spotify and other platforms where we learn the Bible. We're in the book of Shmuel. It's so exciting. Yov ben Surya, Avda Bener, David and Saul and Yonatan. These are Jewish heroes. These are Jews who lived before the exile. Yov ben Surya, he wouldn't have allowed a mosque on the Temple Mount. No way. Neither would Avda Bener and Dovid Amelech, because these were proud Jews. And so the Bible really is amazing when learned properly. So tune into my Bible classes and I'll be back next week, same time, same station.